0: Today, on Cornerstone connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
1: Real love is calling listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is
0: waiting for you with every. Sunrise.
1: Sometimes, we find ourselves in less than desirable places, places in life where we don't want to be. That can be circumstantial, that can be relational, it can be a variety of, you know, metaphorically in a place we don't like to be. And we think this is bad, but could it be that God sees it as a good place for you because he is accomplishing his purposes in your life?
0: This is Cornerstone Connection, radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Jeremiah. It's easy to interpret negative events in your life as a punishment from God. While you certainly will experience consequences for bad decisions, in today's message, Pastor Gary offers us a different point of view on those tough circumstances. It's not because God is angry with you. He often will allow you to go through hard times as a form of loving discipline. It's His way of pointing you back in the right direction, not pushing you away. In those painful moments, He longs to comfort you and build you up. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 24, as he continues his message, Good Things Out of a Bad Place.
1: Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed all the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and took away all the gold articles that Solomon king of Israel had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried into exile all Jerusalem, all the officers and fighting men, and all the craftsmen and artisans, a total of 10,000 people. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the leading men of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and 1,000 craftsmen and artisans. And he made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his, in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. All right, so your attention here. Jehoiakim is 18 years old when he becomes king. His father, Jehoiakim, has already been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. So at a young age, Jehoiakim is now king of Judah. And because he's young, he's impressionable, he sees Nebuchadnezzar advancing, he just surrenders. He gives up early and he gives up quick. And along with Jehoiakim, his uh, royal officials, his mother, his wives, they're taken captive back to Babylon Uh, as well as the craftsmen and the artisans, 7,000 fit fighting men of Judah taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar's army, 10,000 people all told uh, were deported to Babylon. So this entire map represents now the territory of the Babylonian empire roughly 606 BC, they besiege and they end up taking all of this territory, all the way from Egypt through the Sinai, Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Turkey, Syria, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Iraq, Iran, all of this map is under the territory of the Babylonian empire. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has been besieging Judah for the last 20 years, for 20 years. And when he attacks and finally uh, takes the stronghold, which is the capital city of Jerusalem, he takes prisoner, Yeconiah, and his family, and 10,000 Jews, and he deports them all the way back to Babylon. He will take them through the north, and then they hug the Euphrates River all the way down past what is today Baghdad, and all the way down into ancient Babylon. Now, the Babylonians had a very unique uh, uh, um, mindset regarding warfare when they would attack a neighboring nation, they would deport many of the people back to Babylon. And the reason was because, well, you know, your history is Babylon is considered the hanging gardens of Babylon. One of the seven wonders of the, of the ancient world. It was beautiful. It was luxurious. And the Babylonians understood if we can get these people back to Babylon, they'll be more loyal to us because they will become seduced by the beauty of of where we live and our culture and our food and the people. And that's exactly what they did. They made loyal citizens out of their POWs by bringing them into the beauty and luxury and wonder of ancient Babylon. And to some degree that worked. So here come these uh, Jewish prisoners taken captive back to Babylon. There were three waves over a period of 20 years because Nebuchadnezzar, when he came down to Judah, which is the southern part of Israel, he just started to wear the people down by attacking the smaller unfortified cities one at a time, one at a time, one at a time until Jerusalem was left last. And every time he would attack some town, some, some village, some city, he would deport people. History tells us there were three waves of deportation of the Jews back to Babylon. The first was 606 BC, and among the thousands that were taken captive were King Jehoiakim and Daniel and his friends. They were taken in 606 B.C. The second wave of, of Jews who were deported was 597 B.C. Among those 10,000 was King Jehoiakim and the prophet Ezekiel. And then the last siege and deportation was 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took the remaining exiles prisoner back to uh, Babylon. Now, he would leave some in the land, uh, but he would take tens of thousands captive back to uh, ancient Babylon. And so, you know the old saying, Rome didn't fall in a day. Well, either did Jerusalem. It took 20 years from from 606 B.C. to 586 B.C. of Nebuchadnezzar just wearing down Judah until finally he took the fortified capital city of Jerusalem and destroyed it in 586 B.C. So, this story that we're reading here in chapter 24 takes place right around 597 B.C., because during the second deportation, because it says just after, that's verse 1, just after King Jehoiakim and the craftsmen and the artisans and the officials were taken captive, then the Lord shows Jeremiah in the temple two baskets of figs. Now, why were there two baskets of figs at the temple? Well, the answer is first fruits. The people would bring their offerings to the house of the Lord, to honor the Lord with the first of the fruit of their harvest. And in this case, uh, they had, somebody had brought, either two people brought a basket each, or one person brought two baskets. We don't have any history on it. But here at the temple, the Lord says to Jeremiah, what do you see? And Jeremiah says, I see figs. And God's like, be a little more specific. And Jeremiah says, okay, I see two baskets of figs, and one basket is good figs. And one basket is bad figs. Now, if you, if you have a King James Bible, it says, instead, instead of the word bad, it says naughty. It's just, isn't that funny? Okay, one bad, naughty, you naughty figs. So anyway, so he sees these two baskets. One is good, and one is so bad, you can't even eat it. How a bad basket got to the temple of the Lord, we don't really know. It could have been maybe even providential. Maybe God just providentially brought this about for this visual illustration to Jeremiah. It could also be that, you know, this was back in the day when there weren't any preservatives added to this, like sulfur dioxide and stuff. And so, they, figs spoiled very quickly. And maybe somebody delayed in bringing their offering to the temple of the Lord. We don't know how the bad figs got there, but you have one good basket one bad basket. When people would bring things like this to the temple, it was unto the Lord, but it was for the priests. The law dictated that Numbers 18 verse 13 said that the people, when they would bring the first of the harvest, would bring it unto the Lord to the temple, but this was for the priest to have for themselves. This was part of the way that the priests were provided for uh, in the service of, of their ministry, was they, they would take the first fruits that were offered unto the Lord, and it was part, partly for their provision. And so Jeremiah sees one good basket, one bad basket. And then the Lord is going to use this illustration here to communicate something. And he says in this chapter that the good figs represent those who have been taken exile into Babylon. These people who have been separated from their homeland, forcibly removed from their homeland, separated from their families, Uh, they, they, they are leaving everything behind, and they're being taken as a prisoner of war to Babylon. And God says the good basket of figs is a picture of them. And the bad basket of figs, he says here in chapter 24, is a picture of King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, and those who have remained in the land and were not deported to Babylon. Now, please note with me that it's not intended to represent good people, bad people. All of Judah was guilty before God of adopting pagan practices and worshiping pagan gods of the neighboring nations around them. Obviously, within the guilt of the whole nation, there were bound to be some people who were still faithful to God and righteous before Him. We know some. We know Jeremiah, for example, Daniel, Ezekiel. Okay? But nevertheless, even those who were considered righteous before God, like Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, Daniel and Ezekiel, though they might have been considered good, got swept up and were deported along with the bad figs. So it's not a picture of good people, bad people. If that were the case, then why were good people being taken hostage and having to serve 70 years of captivity in Babylon? So the figs do not represent good people, bad people. The good fruit, bad fruit of this story represents the good that will come out of being disciplined by God, or the bad that will result for those who resist it. That's the lesson of the figs here. The good figs, bad figs, was not a statement about good people, bad people, but the good that is produced in the hearts of people who will respond to the discipline of God, or the bad that will result for those who refuse it. Now, what was so ironic in all of this, the way that God Referred to the exiles as good, looking ahead to the good that was going to come out of their lives, and the bad fruit, those who were staying behind. The irony of this is that those who were taken captive and deported to Babylon, okay, stripped of everything, taken... Can you imagine that another nation comes, forcibly removes you from your homes, separates you from your children or your parents takes you to a foreign country. You likely will not see your parents or your children again. You've left everything you've ever known or been comfortable with in your home. You're now living in a foreign land. It's easy to look at that situation and say to yourself, and this is what happens in our story, the people looked at their circumstance. Now that they've been deported to Babylon and said, this is bad. And God says, no, this is good. You're, you're You're the picture of the good things. And and that the irony also is that those who were not deported, King Zedekiah and the others who stayed back in the land, and they prided themselves that they were better than the exiles because look, we get to stay in our homeland and, and those people got exiled, they're over in Babylon. And they thought to themselves, this is good. And God said, no, no, this is bad. That's the irony of all of this, because the issue at hand was not where they lived, but who they were living for. That was the real issue at hand here. It was not where they lived, but who they were living for. And sometimes, God has to get us out of our comfort zone so we can figure that out. Anybody relate to me on this? Sometimes God has to get us out of our comfort zone so we will finally acknowledge that we're living for Him. So here in our chapter in verse 5, when God says, I regard the exiles as good, he does not mean they were good people. Otherwise, he would not have sent them captive to Babylon for 70 years. But he says, I regard the exiles as good because he was looking ahead to the good that is going to be accomplished in their lives through the chastening of them for his glory and for their good. Sometimes, we find ourselves in less than desirable places. Places in life where we don't want to be. That can be circumstantial, that can be relational, it can be a variety of, you know, metaphorically, in a place we don't like to be. And we think, this is bad. But could it be that God sees it as a good place for you because He is accomplishing His purposes in your life? Everybody tracking with me? Every bad place is not actually bad if it is producing in you something good. Isn't this what Romans 8, 28 is all about? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. Being in, quote, a bad place with God is far better than being in a good place without Him. You might look at your life and think, I don't really like where I am. I feel like this is a bad place to be, and for whatever reason, in the circumstances of your life. Hey, being in a bad place with God is far better than being in a good place without Him. Those who were deported to Babylon would learn quickly how to cry out to God and how to draw near to Him. And that was a good place to be. While the people who remained in Judah, unchallenged and unchanged, without regard for God, would quickly find out that's a bad place to be. All that to say that what we sometimes think as bad circumstances could actually be God working out His good purposes in our lives. Maybe we've got some growing up to do. Maybe there are some things that God needs to strip from our lives that we won't really get unless we're moved into a place that we think, this is bad, but God thinks, no, 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 no. This is good. This is right where I want you to be so that I can grow you closer to me. This is certainly the case for the Jews in Babylon right here. This is, this is, God needed to purge them of some things they needed to get rid of, and he needed to grow them in some things that they needed to grow in. Now, the good news in all of this is that he's going to bring them back, and he tells them that right here in chapter 24. He tells them all this in advance. He's going to bring them back, but not before they learn what they need to learn. In this chapter, God says he's going to do four things for them. There are four I will statements in the middle of this chapter. He says, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is how I want you to know that my discipline is wrapped also in my grace, that I love you and I care about you. Every bad situation is not bad as long as I'm with you and you turn to me. And so there are four I will statements I want to point out from verses 6 and 7. I put the verse up on the screen for you because I'm going to highlight Each of these I will statements, but verses six and seven says this, my eyes, as God speaking, my eyes will watch over them for their good and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God and they will return to me with all their heart. First part I want to highlight is the first part of verse six where he says, my eyes will watch over them for their good. This is the first I will statement of God. I'm going to watch over them. They're going off to captivity, but I'm going to watch over them for their good. God promised his loving, watching care of his people all the while that they were held captive in Babylon. They might have been in a distant land far away from their homeland of Israel, but they were never far away from the watching eye of God. The same is true for you and me. Nothing about our circumstance goes unnoticed by God. He watches over us. We might feel like we're distant from Him, but He will never leave us nor forsake us, and His eyes are always watching over us for our good. You may perceive what you think is God's silence, but do not misunderstand. It is not His disinterest. God's silence that we perceive sometimes It's not a statement of his disinterest, like he doesn't care, and that's why he seems to be silent. God is working out his purposes in God's way, in God's timing, and God cares about everything we go through, and he sees everything concerning you and me. Psalm 121, 7 to 8, says, He will watch over your life, the Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. His watchful eye is always on you. The second thing I want to highlight is the second part of verse six where he says, "And I will bring them back to this land. God promises them in advance that He will bring them back." He didn't have to make that promise, but he always he always goes the extra mile and he always goes beyond what we deserve. that's what's called grace you know he He had every right to say, You know you guys are banished and and That's it. And I'm judging you, but he promises in advance. He's going to bring them back because God always holds out hope for those who turn to him. God always holds out hope for those who turn to him. There's always the promise of restoration with God for those who would turn to him. And so after the 70 years were completed, did God, yes or no, did God bring them back? Yes, he did. If you know your Bibles, yes, he did. He brings them back because he's faithful. He told them in advance, you're going to go off to this time out for 70 years and they're going to learn a lot about their own hearts and about how much God loves them. And in that process, they're going to turn back to him and he's going to bring them back. Psalm 145, 13 says, the Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. And then the rest of verse six, I'll highlight another, I will statement. He says, and I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. The idea behind building and planting speaks of growth and development. Building implies foundation. Planting implies roots. God promised that out of this experience would come a deeper walk with Him, a more mature relationship with Him, a more sure foundation in their lives. Something happens in our lives when we endure the testings of life and the discipline of God. Something of a deeper nature happens in our lives when we endure the testings of life and the disciplines of God. James wrote it this way in James 1, 2-4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And finally, I'll highlight verse 7, which is, altogether the same idea. He says, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. You could summarize verse 7 in one word, relationship. That's what God wants. He wants relationship with them. He wants relationship with us. He longs to have relationship with us. Further down in Jeremiah twenty-nine fourteen. God says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Not when we seek him with a part of our heart, but when we seek him with all of our heart, he says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, because he wants to have relationship with us. The ultimate good of every, quote, bad circumstance of our lives is that we might know Him better. The ultimate good purpose out of every quote, bad circumstance of our life is that we might know God better. And God has a way of seeing us through those things in order to bring us out the other side and be able to say, I know Him better. I understand His love for me at a deeper level. Our lives become more surrendered, more mature, because when we are faithful to turn to Him, he stands ready to always receive us, forgive us. He will never leave you nor forsake you. His eyes are always watching over you. He is accomplishing His good purposes in every bad circumstance of your life. So persevere, friends. Paul would write in Ephesians 1.17, keep, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know Him better.
0: Thanks for tuning in today for Pastor Gary Hamrick's study on Cornerstone Connection. Pastor Gary has been sharing from the writings of Jeremiah, and we hope you'll continue to tune in to dig deeper into this Old Testament book of prophecy. If you have any questions about this series, the Bible itself, or the ministry of Cornerstone Connection, please feel free to reach out. Our phone number here is 703-771-1500. And when you call, let us know how we can be praying for you. Again, our number is 703-771-1500. You can continue listening to Pastor Gary's messages right now by visiting our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc or by downloading our mobile app. You can find a link on our website or just search for Cornerstone Chapel in your app store. Pastor Gary also has some companion study resources for many of his teachings. These are located under the Teachings tab at cornerstoneconnection.cc and are free for you to use in your own study of the Word. We'd enjoy meeting you too. If you're in the Leesburg area, You're invited to join us at Cornerstone Chapel for our weekly services. You can get directions and service times at our website. One more time, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for in today's teaching. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say
1: you're a wandering soul That you've got no You know